usually at this point, we'd have somebody come up and read for us the morning scripture, but this week we're going to listen to the second excellent recording, the second excellent song about, of all things, Matthew's genealogy. And it's a song titled Matthew's Begat, and it's by a singer-songwriter whom you already like. We just sang one of this songwriter's songs a couple minutes ago. There's a songwriter by the name of Andrew Peterson who wrote this song that you're about to hear, Matthew's Begat. He also wrote the song that we just sang, Is He Worthy? So enjoy this song and listen and see if you pay close attention to the text in front of you and to the song up on the screen. You might notice a couple of subtle differences, which we're going to talk about during the, uh, during the sermon. But don't let that detract from your enjoyment of this singing of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Matthew's begat. Go ahead, Samuel. on the genealogy of Matthew, two songs about the genealogy of Matthew. I mean, friends, if the list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel is this exciting, imagine what way it remains for us in the rest of the book. So, for those of you who couldn't join us last week, we did. We began a study through the gospel according to Matthew. And we began by talking about the idea behind gospel. So for those of you who were last week, we we talked about why do we have four Gospels, four different accounts of Jesus' life and ministry? What do we do with apparent contradictions in the Gospel accounts? 
And why can we trust these four accounts as accurate, as reliable, and as true? And so if you missed last week's sermon, it's available through our church website, chestnutstreetbaptist.org, or also on our church, church YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Camden. So you can go back and you can watch that and get the groundwork that was laid last week as we started this study. But friends, what we want to remember as we again look at this genealogy of Matthew this week is what the genealogy tells us about what we're about to study together. The fact that Matthew started his gospel with a genealogy tells us, friends, that this is not apocryphal. This is actual. This is not mythical. This is factual. This is not legend. This is history that Matthew is presenting to us. And he roots it in history by starting with a genealogy. Friends, the message that Matthew is giving to us is that God entered into history. Our God entered into human history. And friends, Jesus didn't enter into our history in some kind of generic way or some kind of general way. He actually entered into a specific branch of history and thus the genealogy. Now, in our day, genealogies actually become pretty big business. In 2021, Ancestry.com's revenue was $1.3 billion. And they're only a portion of the Ancestry research market. Genealogies become a billion-dollar industry today. There are websites, there are books, and now over-the-counter genetic test kits. I don't know if you get advertisements for those. I seem to get those all the time. Further, we've discovered that researching genealogy is not just interesting for us. I guess it makes compelling TV because there's a documentary series, Who Do You Think You Are?, where different celebrity participants in each episode research their genealogy, and it's now been on American TV for 11 seasons. And I guess what makes it compelling, because I've never watched it, But I guess what makes it compelling is that when you start to dig into your genealogy, friends, you start to turn up some black sheep. When you start to go back, you're bound to find some black sheep in your family history. Now, because black sheep, because the wool of a black sheep couldn't be dyed any other colors, shepherds thought black sheep were basically worthless. Because you couldn't dye their wool. And so to call someone a black sheep is to say that they are worth less than other family members. They're they're the ones who are not so successful, not so highly regarded. The black sheep is the embarrassment or the disgrace, the outcast of the family. They're the one that that we don't talk about. And, And yet, if you dig into your genealogy, friends, you're bound to find a black sheep or two. And the interesting thing is that when we dig into Jesus' genealogy, friends, we uncover a black sheep or two in his genealogy. So I believe that the story into which Jesus chose to join himself that we hear about in the genealogy tells us about why Jesus came. So the genealogy, this list of names, gives us an indication as to why Jesus came at all. So shall we name some names? Now, first we noted last week Matthew, he's giving us a selective genealogy here. It's not in any way exhaustive. 
So you need to understand, when the text says the father of, then that's actually saying the ancestor of. It could actually be the grandfather or the great-grandfather. It's basically saying the ancestor of this person. Because generations are unquestionably omitted by Matthew when he gives us this. Because we saw last week, verse 17 says that he gives us 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 between David and the Babylonian exile, 14 between the exile and Jesus. Now, this was a common practice in Matthew's death. You would abridge long genealogies because they were easier to remember. They were easier to memorize. And also, as we talked about last week, Matthew abridged it down to three sets of 14 to make a theological point. And if you want to find out that theological point, go back and watch last week's sermon. However, there's another incredible little Easter egg hidden in this genealogy that I just want to begin by considering because this, I, I, I didn't see this until I really started digging into it, and this is just so cool. So, did anyone notice, for those of you that were playing along at home, as the song was playing, was anybody looking at the text in front of them, and did you note any differences? Is anyone playing along? All right, well, I'll tell you ahead of time that there are three major differences. One of them is in verse 11. The last king before the exile is named in the text. If you look at the text, if you're looking in the Pew Bible or in the text that's printed in front of you, the last king in verse 11 is named Jeconiah, but in the song he was called Jehoiakim. Now, that's a simple issue of sometimes people had two different versions or variations of their name. Sometimes there was a throne name and a regular name, and that's what we have coming in here. This is simply a variation. We actually hear him called Jehoiakim in Second Kings, and he's called Jeconiah elsewhere, including here. So that's not a big deal, but there are two other ones that are really big deal. And this is so cool. Okay, so look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. And both of these things come from the list of kings that we have right in the middle of the genealogy, 6 through 10. Um, I promise the whole sermon is not going to be this detailed. This is just a really cool point. I have to point this out to you. Okay, so the ESV text that you have in front of you, it says, Abijah is the father of Asaph. But for those of you that were paying attention, the song said, Abijah is the father of Asaph. Or, if the kids are here, the kids have some pretty awesome genealogy sheets to be working on today. So I was tempted just to hand these out to all of you, but you would have been distracted during the sermon. But there's some really cool ones. And there we go. There's Asa. He's on the genealogy sheet here. Asa's also here. So I have a couple of sheets and a song that say Asa. But then you have the ESV text in front of you that says it's Asaph. Oh, whoa, what's going on here? Somebody made a mistake? Well, we find something similar just a few verses later. Look, um, look at verse 10. Verse 10, the ESV text here says, Manasseh was the father of Amos, but the song said Manasseh's son was Amon. In fact, he made a little play on words. He goes, Amon was Aman. Did you catch that one? So we have two major variations. Instead of Asa, we have Asaph. Instead of Amon, we have Amos. Now, What's the correct answer? The correct answer is Asa and Amon. They were the kings. There was a king named Asa. There was a king named Amon. They fit in the genealogy. That is the correct answer to the genealogy. But if you go back to the Greek, you know what Matthew wrote? He wrote Asaph and Amos. 
whoops, what's going on, Matthew? What's going on here? Now, these could be common variations in names, but I think Matthew was doing something really, really cool. I think he was giving a little wink to his audience. You see, we skim over the genealogies. Let's be honest. Bible reading program, you hit the genealogy, oh, i got to get through this one quick. But in Israel's day, friends, they memorized the genealogies. They studied the genealogies. And so when Matthew lists the kings, he knew that his readers already knew who the kings were. He knew the order. They knew the order. So when he drops Asaph instead of Asa, they would have gone, whoa, oh, that's not right. And when he dropped Amos instead of Amon, they would have immediately gone, that's not right either. So why do you choose these two names? Friends, Asaph was a famous psalmist. If you read, many of our psalms were written by a psalmist named Asaph. Amos was a prophet. We have a book in our Old Testament called the Book of Amos, which is a collection of his prophecies. So what Matthew was doing was giving a little wink to his audience. You see, they would have immediately noticed, what's Matthew doing? Did he mess? He didn't mess this up. Oh, I see what he's doing. You see, Matthew was suddenly saying, Jesus, the guy I'm about to tell you about, he fulfilled everything that's in the Psalms. Remember Asaph? Jesus fulfilled what Asaph and the other psalmists wrote about. Amos, the prophet, you know the stuff that Amos and all the other prophets wrote about? Jesus fulfilled everything that the prophets wrote about. So, he's already listed the patriarchs. He's already listed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he mentions a famous psalmist. Then he mentions a famous prophet. He's saying, hey, guess what? That's the three divisions of the Hebrew law. The three divisions of the Hebrew scriptures, that is. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus fulfills it all. Now, we, we aren't going to catch that because we don't know genealogies. We don't follow genealogies. We don't catch these names. We don't see it in the original language. But I think Matthew was giving a little wink to his audience going, Hey, guess what? The story I'm about to tell you, this is no ordinary story. This guy, Jesus, who I'm about to write about, he fulfilled it all. All the promises. All the writings. All the prophecies, they're fulfilled in the story I'm about to tell you. So pay attention. And his original readers would have gotten that, and we don't get it at all today. But I just thought that was so cool. So I just had to share that with you. But what we find here as we go into it is that Jesus is the fulfillment, and Matthew makes that point. So let's dig into some of the actual names. Verse 1. Verse 1. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Friends, Jesus was the son. He was the offspring of Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. Now, again, for those of you who are doing the Read Through the Bible in a Year program with us, you read through Genesis already, and you might remember that God made many promises to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. God made many promises, and some of them were right here in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. I will surely bless you, Abraham. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So God made some promises to the offspring, the son of Abraham. 
And friends, thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul looked at those promises that God made to the offspring of Abraham, and he said, they were fulfilled in Jesus. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So friends, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, all those promises made to the offspring of Abraham, they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is, as Matthew writes, the offspring, the son of Abraham. And so friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. But then, Matthew says, not just Abraham, but King David. King David, the greatest king of Israel, received promises for his offspring also from the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, friends, there was going to be an offspring, a son of David, who was going to receive David's kingdom and his throne, and it says that that throne was going to be established forever. Friends, none, none of David's offspring could fulfill that because they were mortal. They all died. They couldn't receive a throne in a kingdom that would never end because they ended. But we find here that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And again, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring, the son of David, as preached in my gospel. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, the fulfillment of the promises to David. And if he's risen from the dead, that means death no longer has any power over him, so he can receive an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, because he will never die unlike all the rest of David's lineage. So the story that Matthew's about to tell us, friends, is a story of God bringing blessing to the nations through the offspring of Abraham. It's a story of God establishing his kingdom through the offspring of David. And Matthew is setting us up for that story. These are themes that you and I are going to see as we study through Matthew's gospel together. And then in verse 2, we'll keep moving here because there's a lot in here. Matthew continues tracing Jesus' genealogy. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel, or Jacob, had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see that Jesus' ancestry is traced through the fourth son, whose name was Judah. Now again, this is another fulfillment, friends, of the Lord's promises. When, when Israel, or Jacob, was very, very old, and he was about to die, again, you who've just read through Genesis, you might remember this. The very end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, Israel brings in all 12 of his sons to bless them before he dies. And when he comes to Judah, he actually gives a very long blessing. And friends, this is a portion of what he says over Judah in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you've gone up, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's 
staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So friends, it says Judah is a lion, which represented royalty, and the ruling scepter was not going to depart from Judah until it comes to the one to whom it belongs, the one to whom all the nations, it says, will be obedient. Friends, Matthew is making this clear. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Did you ever wonder why he's called the Lion of Judah? It's because of this. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He was the one that was prophesied all the way back through the prophecy that Israel spoke over his son. Jesus fulfilled it. He's the Lion of Judah, the one to whom the scepter was going to come. He's going to rule. He receives the kingdom and his kingdom will never end. This is great. So far, this genealogy is wonderful. We're doing really well. But then we hit verse 3. And verse 3, it starts to get a bit, shall we say, unsavory. Because when you dig into your genealogy, you're bound to find some black sheep in your family. And it's noted in verse 3 that Judah, the father of the twins, Perez and Zerah, and their mother was Tamar. Now, friends, we have to note, again, we don't understand these genealogies. We don't study Hebrew genealogies. They never listed the moms. The lineage was traced through the dad. They never, rarely ever mentioned the moms. But yet here we find Tamar, and she's the first of Matthew chooses to include in his genealogy, a black sheep story. Again, if you just finished reading through Genesis, you might remember her story from Genesis 39. Now, first of all, Tamar was not an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. And the Jewish people looked down on non-Israelites. They considered them guilty and immoral and unclean. But then Tamar's story is even more questionable. You see, Tamar was a mistreated woman. And she avenged herself by disguising herself as a prostitute and tricking her father-in-law into sleeping with her. And he became pregnant by her father-in-law, and thus the twins, Perez and Zerah. Ooh. Oh, Matthew. Matthew, these are not stories we tell in polite company. Why? Matthew, Matthew, why would you go out of your way to bring up Tamar? Well, Matthew doesn't stop there. Verse 5, we find another woman mentioned Rahab. Now, Rahab is in the book of Joshua. We meet her in chapter 2. Rahab's story is actually a little bit better. I mean, she hid the Israelite spies when they came to spy out the land, uh, the city of Jericho. However, what we find is that Rahab was, again, both an outsider. She was a Canaanite, and she was also a prostitute. Oh, or another black sheep. Matthew, you didn't need to tell that story. Keep that under wraps. But Matthew's on a roll, because in the same verse as Rahab... In verse 5, Matthew brings up another woman, Ruth. Now, Ruth's story, good news, Ruth's story is beautiful. Ruth's story is is just profoundly beautiful. In fact, we have an entire book in our Old Testament that tells the story of Ruth. But friends, Ruth was, again, she was a Gentile. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. And friends, Genesis 19 tells us that the Moabite people had their origins from an incestuous encounter between father and daughter. And then Deuteronomy 23 tells us that because of their unkindness to Israel when she left Egypt, the Moabites, they were banned from ever being part of the assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation. So this was a despised 
despicable people that she was part of. And Matthew goes out of his way to say, hey, by the way, Jesus has a Moabite in his uh, ancestry there. You don't get this, do you, Matthew? Well, we finally come to King David. Okay, good. We get into genealogy of King David. I mean, David was the greatest of kings, so the story's got to get better from here, right? Look at verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. By the wife of Uriah. We find another woman mentioned, and this woman's name is not mentioned here, but her name is Bathsheba. And you can read her story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So King David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba by which she got pregnant. And then David had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed. So we find another story involving a non-Israelite, the Hittite, and immoral sexuality. Another black sheep story that Matthew goes out of his way to mention and showcase. And friends, the genealogy actually doesn't get much better from here. Because Matthew gives us a list of kings in the next section, and it's a real mixed bag. If you look quickly at the kings in verses 6 through 11, we have Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah. Those were some really good kings. But you also have listed here Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Amon. These were some of the most wicked and evil kings that Israel experienced. These were black sheep of the most disgraceful kind. Friends, Matthew's genealogy doesn't whitewash anything. He gives us the good, the bad, and believe it or not, it actually gets even uglier in verse 11. Now, that last king who I mentioned, whose name is different, so it's Jeconiah here in the text, but also known as Jehoiakim. We find him named as Jehoiakim in 2 Kings 24 when we meet him. The song, Matthew's Begats, mentioned that he was a liar. Did you get that little thing? He's a liar. He's a liar who caused the Babylonian exile. Friends, King Jeconiah, his evil was so great that not only did it cause the Babylonian exile, but the Lord declares in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, about Jeconiah. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Ooh. Oh, this is ugly. This just got really ugly. So the Lord has just declared a curse on him. He says, your natural biological children cannot inherit the throne. And that's a problem. Because legally, the claim to the throne still comes through the line of Jeconiah. So you see how ugly this is? See, it gets really ugly here because you have to legally be of Jeconiah's line to inherit the throne, but you biologically can't be of his line if you're going to inherit the throne. That's ugly. How's God going to resolve this so that he can have a legal descendant sit upon the throne of David? The good news is that the curse is declared in Jeremiah 22, but in the very next chapter in Jeremiah 23, the Lord does say there will be a solution. Because he doesn't want people to despair. And so we find in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice 
and righteousness in the land. So he says, I'm going to raise up a branch. In other words, from the tree of David, he's going to be somehow related to David. But how's God going to do this? How can he provide a legal descendant who can sit on the throne who is not a biological descendant of the evil king Jeconiah? And friends, Matthew tells us in the genealogy that the answer is Jesus. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. First of all, here's the fifth and final woman named in this genealogy, Mary. And friends, she's named for such an important reason. Because you've got to understand what Matthew doesn't say in verse 16. Look at verse 16. What does Matthew not say? Every other link in the genealogy, he says, so-and-so was father of, so-and-so was father of, so-and-so was father of, father of, father of, father of. Joseph was the, oh, he wasn't the father. Joseph was the husband of Mary. Oh, so that means that Jesus was biologically not Joseph. And if he biologically wasn't Joseph, then he biologically wasn't of the line of the evil king, Jeconiah. Yet, because Joseph married a woman named Mary, legally, the child born to her would be considered Joseph legally. So therefore, he had a legal claim to the throne of David. But yet he wasn't a biological descendant of the evil king, Jeconiah, just as God had said. Friends, this is the only solution to the ugly problem that King Jeconiah had created. Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph, so he's not a biological descendant of Jeconiah, but yet he's the legal descendant. Therefore, he legally can claim the throne of David. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of of Jeremiah's prophecy. He is the righteous branch that came from David's line. So, friends, Matthew tells us that Jesus came because he's the only one who could redeem the ugly situation that had been created. And friends, that's actually what the whole genealogy teaches us. Jesus came because he's the only one who can redeem the ugly situation that we've created. He's the only one who can come. He's come to redeem us the good, the bad, and the ugly. Friends, God is sovereign. He's completely in control. I mean, he could have included anyone in Jesus' lineage But yet he included so many obviously blatantly black sheep in ugly situations because God wanted us to know that he's come to redeem black sheep and ugly situations. Jesus came because, friends, the truth is all of us are black sheep. All of us have gotten ourselves into ugly, impossible situations because of our sins. The truth is that every person in Jesus' genealogy is actually a black sheep. I mean, again, they might look clean and good at first, but you don't have to dig very far to discover that everyone is stained by sin. And everyone is an impossibly ugly situation because of their sin. Friends, the unsavory nature of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew points to the unsavory nature of us. All the black sheep points to the fact that we are all black sheep, and it points to the good news. Friends, it points to the good news. Jesus came to save black sheep. We're all black sheep in need of saving. Friends, God doesn't have two types of sheep. 
He doesn't have like a flock of pure white perfect sheep and a flock of black sheep. God only has a fold made up of entirely black sheep because He knows the truth about us. And the Gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has come to bring us black sheep into His family. As Reformation theologian Martin Luther wrote about this genealogy, he says, Christ was the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, He even puts them in His family tree. And friends, Christ has come to forgive and to receive sinners. He's come. He, the perfect Lamb of God, came to save us black sheep and to redeem us from the impossibly ugly mess that we've made of our lives and our world. Friends, the Gospel that we celebrate today as we come to the table is that the perfect Lamb of God lay down His life, shed His blood so that black sheep like us might be cleansed and so that we might become His. The Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, the perfect and pure Lamb of God laid down His life to make us black sheep part of His family, to forgive us of our sins, and to get us out of the impossibly, the impossible situation that our sin had gotten us into. So church, are you living that new identity? Are you living that new identity as one who has been forgiven and freed and now included in Jesus' genealogy, in His family? Do you know and are you living that acceptance and forgiveness? And friends, if you're here today and you've never received the forgiveness that Jesus came to offer us, don't let this time pass you by. No matter what you've done, no matter how impossible the mess that you've made of your life because of sin, Jesus has come and laid down His life to forgive you and to make you His. So that we, so that we black sheep might now come and be forgiven by the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for the good news that this list of names can give us. Lord, we ask that as we come to Your table, as we receive, and as we remember, that, Father, we would be changed, drawn closer to You, loving You more, following you more closely, and honoring you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.